right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Faith. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Mike, one of the pastors on staff here, and it is great to have you with us today in person. Great to have you with us today online as we are in week two of a series, an Advent series that we've entitled The Miracles of Christmas. Uh, what we're doing in this series is each week we are looking at a different miracle. We're, we're watching how God steps into a world governed by natural order and influences time and space and history so as to bring about his purposes and shine light on his glory. And each week we're looking at one of the miracles that took place in the very first Christmas and just exploring together how that miracle is still incredibly relevant to our lives this Christmas. So uh, we're going to take a minute and pray and invite God to be part of this. And then today we're going to get after the miracle of the message. So let's pray together. Father, just as we are just in the midst of the season with all the distractions and the busyness and the worry that can come with that, Father, we pray that you would help us just to take a step back this morning just to push all that stuff aside for a little bit and to just try and focus in on you, on the truth that you have for us and for our lives as it's revealed to us in the scriptures and just recognize the message that you are trying to speak to us this Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So way back when our daughter Becca was entering into high school, she discovered that in order to graduate, one of the requirements was that you take two semesters, same language, but two semesters of a foreign language. And so Becca informed us as she was going into her freshman year that she was going to take French. I was like, Becca, why would you take French? Nobody cares about French. Nobody cares about France for that matter, right? Just some fun for my French friends out there, right? Fabio, I got your back, buddy. Um, so, so Becca, you know, she, I was like, honey, you're never going to use French. You know, we know lots of Latino people. We go to Mexico every now and again. Take a language that would be useful. Take Spanish. Did my teenage daughter listen to me? You've had teenagers, right? Oh, look at that, right? No, she takes French, right? And she takes her first semester of French, and she did fine. She, academically, she passed. But then she was like, you know what? I don't like French. I'm not going to take an, another semester of French. Ah, to be a parent and be right. Right? <laughs> so her sophomore year comes around, and, and she's going to sign up for a foreign language again. And, and she signs up for American Sign Language. I'm like, Becca, what are you doing? You know, it's, it's going to be the same thing as last year. You're going to take a semester, you'll do well academically, you decide you don't like this thing, and then you're going to have to take another language your junior year. Just take Spanish. Doesn't listen to me. It didn't play out quite like I thought it would, though. She takes his first semester of ASL and falls in love with American Sign Language. Takes the second semester. In fact, she took all the sign language courses she could in high school. Graduates, goes to Madonna University. Gets a four-year degree in sign language interpretation. And now she works as a translator in uh, North Dakota public schools, translating for deaf children in the school system. Yeah. Ah, to be a parent and be wrong. Yeah, it happens, right? So... Now, one of the kids Becca works with, just the, the, the circumstances of this kid's life just break Becca's heart. 
kids deaf, which is why she works with Becca. And uh, Becca started working with her last year as the kid was coming into kindergarten. It's about five years old. The kid can't hear. The kid doesn't speak. She has, I mean, not that she, her voice doesn't work, but she doesn't speak. She doesn't sign. She doesn't read lips. Nothing. Like virtually has no way to communicate with her classmates, with her teachers, with her parents, with nobody. And so Becca begins to teach this little girl how to sign. And it turns out the little girl is actually a pretty bright girl and she picks up really well and she begins to learn and is doing well academically. Now, because of the communication barriers, the, the kid's home life is problematic. She has no way to communicate with her parents. She's deaf, her parents are hearing, she didn't, you know, there's no communication going on and so it creates all kinds of issues. And so Becca begins to try and teach this girl's parents some basic sign language so that they can communicate with their daughter. You ready for it? They're not interested. They cannot be bothered to, to be inconvenienced to learn a new language so as to communicate with their child. Now, the wind, the wind changing direction breaks Becca's heart. Right? That's just who she is. But this one legitimately broke her heart. She recognized parents should love their children. And one of the ways that they express love is when they can, they try and learn their child's language so they can communicate with their child. And a parent who has the opportunity to do that and just can't be bothered, it's a heartbreaking kind of thing. This is one of the reasons I appreciate the miracle of the message. See, in, in the first Christmas, we see God seeking to communicate with us. And he does so in the language that we understand best. In the first Christmas, God is seeking to speak a message to us in our native tongue. Now, there are all kinds of places you can go to in the Bible that describe this for us. We're going to zoom in on one particular one right at the beginning of the New Testament book of Hebrews. Picking up in, in Hebrews 1.1, the writer tells us this. They say, in the past, a long time ago, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and many times and in various ways. So the writer's like, hey, back in the day, God was talking. And he's talking through all kinds of people. You know, he spoke to us through Moses and Deborah and Samuel and Jonah and, and David and Jeremiah and Malachi and more. And God, he, he's, he's speaking in various ways. He's getting creative about how he does this. You've got burning bushes and talking donkeys and stone tablets and, and written word and still small voices and in the thundercloud and, and in visions and dreams and more. God is going out of his way. The, the, the God of the Bible is not the strong and silent type. He is going out of his way to try and communicate. From the time God breathes the breath of life into the nostrils of that first human being, he has been seeking to communicate with his children. But as the writer continues, he, he lets us know that there's a shift in how God's communicating. He says, but, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, if you're, you're astute, you may be reading this and you're going, these last days? Like, this was written nearly 2,000 years ago. How long did the last days last, right? And that's a fair question. Here's what you have going on. 
This term that we translate here is last days. It's a term used to describe a period of time. We get this, right? When we say the Enlightenment, we think of, okay, 17th and 19th century. We say the Depression era. We think of roughly 1929 to 1941. Well, the last days refers to a period of time that begins with the first coming of Jesus and the fulfillment of all that prophecy on that very first Christmas. And then it ends with the second coming of Jesus when he returns to earth to bring an end to time and history as we know it and establish a new heaven and a new earth. The last days describes the period of time between the first and second coming of Jesus. And the writer is saying, in these last days, in the time we are living in right now, God is still speaking, and he's speaking to us by his Son. And then as the writer continues, what the writer is going to do is describe for us attributes of Jesus. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to kind of get after two questions. First one being, okay, just, who is this Jesus whom God is speaking to us through? Who, who is this, this Jesus character? What is he like? What is the writer of Hebrews telling us about him? And then what are the implications for our lives in light of that? Like, what is the message that God is speaking to us through the attributes of his son? So, that being said, we'll just dive right into what, what the writer is saying to us about Jesus as he begins, and he talks to us about some of the attributes of Jesus. He starts this way. About Jesus, he says, He is the one whom God appointed the heir of all things, and through whom God also made the world. Now, th this term, all things, it is a reference to the totality of the created order. The writer starts off telling us that basically Jesus is the heir of the universe. It all belongs to him. Now, as the heir, and James talked about this a little bit last week, as the heir, Jesus does not have possession of it currently. But when he returns a second time, part of what Jesus is going to do is come back to claim his inheritance. The writer's saying, hey, Jesus owns it all. And then, lest we make the mistake of thinking about Jesus and, and what kind of heir he is, the way some of the people in the first century thought about Jesus, the writer clarifies for us. See, one of the errors that some people had in the first century about Jesus was this idea, that, and this may sound familiar to you, this idea that Jesus was just a good teacher. Jesus was just a prophet. He was a, an especially interesting religious figure. And Jesus was an heir by adoption. That, that God the Father looked down and saw this, this Jesus character who was just so well put together, just, just this individual that was so virtuous that God adopted him as his son and made him his heir. But the writer goes out of his way here to make it very clear. Jesus is not a son through adoption, but by divine right. And you may go, well, how, how do you know he's a son by divine right? Because of what the writer tells us Jesus has done. He says that Jesus is one through whom also he made the world. You comb through the scriptures and you see this idea that creation is a divine activity. Again and again and again, it is God 
who creates. And yet the writer is telling us here that in the second person of the, 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 the Godhead, in the second person of the triune Godhead, we see one through whom divinity created all that we know in our world and beyond. Jesus is the heir of all things, not by right of adoption, but by right of creation. Now, the writer's just getting started here as he talks to us about Jesus. Here's what he says next. He says, the sun, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, I think there's a lot going on there. You know why that is? Because there's a lot going on there, all right? So we'll try and unpack this as best we can in a reasonable amount of time. We'll take it a piece at a time. He starts off and he says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. This term that we have translated here is the radiance of God's glory. Radiance here, it is in reference to the rays or the brightness or the light or the splendor that pours forth from a luminous being. Probably the example we are most familiar with is our sun. It's sitting out there in space and it pours forth all kinds of brightness and light and heat and splendor. And, and the, the, the radiance of the sun is both incredibly dangerous and incredibly beneficial. On the dangerous side, for example, astronomer Mark Thompson took a pig's eye, put it behind a telescope, aimed it straight at the sun, took 20 seconds to burn through the lens of the pig's eye. Sun's strong. 5,000 times brighter than, than the average light bulb. You stare at the sun with your naked eye. You get blurry spots, splotches in your vision. You keep staring. You'll mess up your cornea. You keep staring. You do permanent damage to your lens. It is incredibly powerful. And yet it is incredibly beneficial. We are alive on planet Earth because we get to enjoy the light and the heat some times more than others, right? But you get the light and the heat from the sun, and that's what makes life on this rock possible. What, what the writer is telling us here, what he's illustrating for us, is that our, as the rays are to the sun, so Jesus is to God's glory. As the rays are to the sun, so Jesus is to God's glory. Except with Jesus, we get all the benefit without the danger. With Jesus... In that first Christmas, as Jesus takes on humanity, he made it possible for us to stare full on into the glory of God. And with Jesus, not only do we get to see the glory of God and live, but we get to enjoy the heat and the light of God in ways that they did not in the past. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And he is the exact representation of his being. Now, th th this phrase that we have translated here is exact representation. In the original language, it's used to describe a tool that you would mint or stamp or impress an image onto something with, like a coin. And then it was also used to describe that image that you stamped out. It's the Greek word charakter. Charakter. Sound familiar? It's where we get our word character from. Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. Now that term being, 
It's a word meant to, to capture essence or substance or true nature. So what the writer is telling us is if you could mint or stamp out or impress God's substance, his essence, his true nature onto something, if you could mint God's character, you would get Jesus as a result. Jesus takes the invisible God and makes him visible to us. And then lest we're tempted to think that Jesus is still just kind of a regular guy, the writer finishes this way as he's talking about attributes. He says that Jesus is sustaining all things by, the power, by his powerful word. In other words, the, the, the four forces that scientists tell us hold the universe together today. Gravity, strong and weak nuclear forces, and electromagnetism. According to the writer of Hebrews here, Jesus is the one who keeps them functioning that way day by day, and they will continue to do so at his bidding. So, in summary, whether you like what the writer of Hebrews has said or agree with him or not, he tells us that in Jesus, in Jesus, we have the one who made it all, who owns it all, and who holds it all together. In Jesus, we have God's glory and character made visible and accessible to us. This is who we are being introduced to here in the beginning of Hebrews. Those are his attributes. Now, if you have any questions about his attributes, Pastor James' phone number is on the back of the bulletins in the seat pockets in front of you. Just give him a call this week. He'll be happy to help you. All right. So there's the attributes. Let's move on to the implications of what, what's being communicated to us. And uh, we're going to look at three implications. Number one is assurance. Assurance. See, if, if Jesus really is who the writer of Hebrews tells us he is, part of the message of Christmas is that we can rest assured that Jesus can do what he says he can do. So here's the thing. Anybody can promise anything. Not anybody can deliver on what they promised. So, so for example, when my wife and I were dating, I couldn't promise her anything in an effort to get her to marry me. Could have promised her um, uh, security and, and financial stability. Could have promised her a life of an adventure and purpose. I could have promised her conjugal bliss. I could have promised her children. I could have promised her all kinds of things to try and get her to marry me. Now, just because I promise those things doesn't mean I can deliver on those things. If I'm going to deliver on those things, there are certain resources I have to have in order to deliver. And if Laura, without first checking that I had those resources at my disposal, married me for the sake of those promises, she could have wound up very disappointed. And if the inquiring minds among you want to know which promises did I make and which ones did I keep, you can email my wife at this address right here. All right. She will get back with you in a timely manner. All right, all right back to Jesus and assurance, all right? Back to Jesus and assurance. Part of the message of Christmas is about Jesus and assurance. See, the Jesus of the Bible promises all kinds of things. And when Jesus promises that the meek are going to inherit the earth, 
that he's going to provide for my needs and make sure I'm better fed than the birds of the air and better clothed than the flowers of the field. When Jesus promises that I'm going to receive a hundred times more in the life to come than what I've sacrificed in this life in order to follow him, how do I know he can deliver? When Jesus promises to take the deepest, darkest parts of my life that I am ashamed of and cause me to become completely forgiven, when he promises to take his Holy Spirit and guide me and teach me and have that Holy Spirit take a permanent residence inside of me, when he promises that I will someday be with him in paradise, how do I know he can deliver? When Jesus' promises in this life, the kind of stability that comes with a, a, like a house built on the foundation of bedrock, when he promises the kind of sustainability that comes with a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light, when he says, you're going to know what it is to experience eternal life on this side and the other side of the grave, how do I know he can deliver? If Jesus is who the writer of Hebrews says he is, then he can deliver because he has the resources to do so. He made it all, he owns it all, and he's holding it all together. Jesus has unlimited power, possessions, and influence. Part of the message that comes to us with the first Christmas, as we, as we have humility, we have divinity come to us robed in humanity. It's a message of assurance. Everything that Jesus promised in this life and the life to come, we can take that to the bank because he has the resources to make good on what he has promised. So implication number one, assurance. Number two, everybody's favorite, authority. Yeah, you're like, authority, right? Look, whether you like it or not, authority is part of your life. Every day, authority is exercised over you. Every day, authority is expressed to you. For example, how many of you walked to church today? Nobody. How many of you drove to church today? Who are my drivers? All right, drivers, did you notice red lights, stop signs, speed limits, right? As, as you drove to church, authority was exercised over you. Now, granted, some of you complied with that authority better than others, but it was still being expressed. As you drove, you were told what you could and couldn't do. Authority was exercised over you. And every day in your life, authority is expressed to you. You turn on the radio, you turn on the TV, you get on social, you get online, you go, go to school, you go to work, you go to church. You are being told how life works and how you should think as authoritative statements are being made to you. All the time, we're, we're told things about, like, hey, this is how you define racism today. This is how human sexuality should work. This is what ethical immigration looks like. This is how you are a responsible steward of the planet. This is where life begins. All day, every day, in all kinds of ways, we are being told this is how you should think. This is how life works. Authority is being expressed to you. Now, here's the deal. I would contend that thinking intelligent people don't just do what they're told, and they don't just believe what they're told. Instead, when authority is exercised over them or expressed to them, they ask two very important questions. 
Those questions being, says who, and what gives them the right? Says who, and what gives them the right? Now, says who is all about who is behind the authority. And we've known since we were children this is an important question. Any of us who's ever had a younger sibling come and tell us what to do when we were kids, what, what did we say to them? Says who? That's right. Because who was behind that authority mattered. If it was our younger sibling, we're like, whatever. But if, they, if we say says who and they're like, mom, that's who says, or dad, that says who says, our response is completely different. The authority behind, the, 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 who's behind that authority and the exercising it or the expressing of it makes all the difference in the world. Not only so, but it's also important to ask who gives them the right. Once we know who's expressing authority, do they even have the right to express it or do they have the authority to exercise it in our lives? Now again, we got this when we were kids. This is, this is why when we discovered says who, we responded one way or another. And they're like, well, me, that's who says who. They're like, whatever. You know, you kind of kick your little kid sister or kid brother to the curb. And you're like, I don't have to do what you tell me to. But if it was mom or dad who was behind that authority, they had a right. They had the rule of the roof on their side. Those who provide the roof get to make the rules. The house I grew up in, there was the right of retribution. My parents are the kind of parents, if you bucked their authority, they were not afraid to exercise judgment. Right? There, was just, there, was, there was a right. Now, here's the deal. With the different Jesuses who we meet today, different Jesuses hold up differently to the two-question test. You're like, what are you talking about? Different Jesuses. Look, we have the, the Jesus of our culture, who much like the culture that the writer of Hebrews was writing to, the Jesus of our culture today is a good man, and he's a great teacher. And he's a fascinating religious figure. And for many, he's an incredibly well-resourced individual who's handy to have around when you've got a problem. But that's it. And, and the Jesus of our culture today, very rarely does he exercise or express authority. But when he does, if you're to ask him, well, like, who do you think you are? Well, Jesus. Says who? Well, me. Well, what gives you the right? Uh... Like, who cares that you're a nice guy? Who cares that you're convenient to have around? That does not give you the right to tell me what to do, how to think, or how to live. The Jesus of the Bible, you get a radically different experience. See, the Jesus of the Bible, he regularly exercised authority over and expressed authority to people. And then, the Jesus of the Bible had the audacity extend that authority to his first apostles, who incessantly throughout the New Testament exercise authority over people and express authority to them. When you say to the Jesus of the Bible, who do you think you are, consistently, in the, in the writings of the New Testament about Jesus and in his own words, he says, I am divinity wrapped in humanity. Says who? God. That's who. And when you ask the Jesus of the Bible, well, what gives you the right? If being God isn't enough, he responds here in Hebrews, I made it all, I own it all, and I hold it all together by the power of my word. 
That's what gives me the rights. See, part of the message of the first Christmas is a message of authority. And it tells us that Jesus, he is the only one who has the right to be the ultimate authority in our lives. All right, one more. Final message, final implication is astounding love. Like we said earlier, when a parent can speak their child's language and just can't be bothered to do so, that's heartbreaking. But the good news is that our Father in Heaven isn't that kind of parent. In these last days, He is speaking to us by His Son. By His Son, who enables us to stare full on into the glory of God. By His Son, who has taken the character of God and made it visible to us. God is speaking to us through Jesus. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. It's why Jesus would say to one of his first followers, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father in heaven. You want to know what God thinks like and talks like and acts like? Just watch me. And that first Christmas, God is communicating to us through the person of Jesus. Part of the message of the first Christmas is a message of love. See, our Father loved us so much, He didn't just learn to speak our dialect. But God the Father sent God the Son to leave the glory of heaven to robe himself in flesh and blood, to dwell among us, and to speak to us in the language we understand best, humanity. The miracle of the message tells us in, that in Jesus, we have divinity come to us in that first Christmas robed in humanity. He comes with a message of assurance, a message of authority, and a message of love. If you can, would you stand with us, church, as we pray? Father, I just pray that you would meet us today. Thank you so much that you are still speaking to us. Father, you know our hearts. You know them better than we know them ourselves. Father, whether we're in the room today, whether we're watching online today, help us to hear this Christmas the message you know we need to hear most. Father, if we need to be assured that Jesus is good for his word, let us hear that message of assurance. Father, if we're confused about who has the right to speak authoritatively in our lives, may we hear a message of authority. If we need to hear for the first time or be reminded of your love, 
Help us to hear that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.